Welcome to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are not in the studio. We are at the Morton Center at the site of the Ag PhD Field Day because we just got finished with uh, a Neil Kinsey soil fertility seminar. And if you haven't gotten to hear Neil Kinsey before uh, on our show or at one of his meetings or one of his events, uh, you're in for a treat today because we've got Neil with us and also a couple other special guests that we'll get to here in just a little bit. Um, so I guess on behalf of, of Brian and me, welcome, Neil. Glad to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Really appreciate being on. I mean, it's nice to talk on the phone sometimes, but it's kind of nice to be in person as well. We, we've got a big crowd, as you always draw, and we had so many questions today uh, about soil fertility and things that can be done. And one thing that's really fun, Neil, is that you get to work with so many different crops, and a lot of times you've got stories from uh, hey, well, here's what guys were doing raising strawberries, or here's what guys were doing raising soybeans, and you bring it full circle to help growers, no matter what crop they're raising, if we can fix things in the soil. Uh, I, I have to imagine uh, over a long career, that's been pretty fun just to help growers uh, fix some of the problems and, and improve production. I'd say it's uh, better than a dream come true because I couldn't have dreamed it. <laughs> and it is, it's, it's really an enjoyable thing. Yeah, it's really made a difference for Brian and me, too. We, we've really been working on managing a lot of different issues. Most of them, uh, like everywhere else, we, we talked to folks. We've got folks, I don't even know how many states at this meeting. It's, well, in our area, we're blessed with this. And there's some good stuff and there's some bad stuff. Uh, for us, it's high magnesium soils. And, and that can be kind of challenging. Uh, we talked about some of those excesses in soils. What are some of the tougher things to deal with that you found that you say, man, if you get a lot of this nutrient in your soil, uh, it, it's going to be a little Wait, bit of work let's, to get Let's it narrow that up because Neil's got lots of experience and he can talk about <laughs> lots of things. What's number one on your list for excesses? What are you most worried about if somebody has this in excess? You go, ooh, we got a problem. If we just have one excess, yep, one magnesium. Excess. Magnesium? I would have thought it would have been sodium. So why magnesium? Because, because, it's, on, a, because it's on our farm, Brian. <laughs> He's going to pick on us today, I think. No, it's because <laughs> we do have issues with sodium, but far more parts of the world have issues with excess magnesium. So when you ask me, well, you know, it depends on how you define that. Yep. Sodium is not really as hard to get rid of as magnesium as long as we have good drainage. Uh, the other part is, though, my big answer is, What's the hardest excess to work with? Sodium and magnesium at the same time. Yep. Excess sodium and excess magnesium are the hardest soils to work with because they're, they're so tight. Yep. And depending on how much, uh, it can take a tremendous amount of materials to, to solve the problem. Yeah, we deal with that in the Dakotas. We've had many people that, you know, it's high magnesium soil, and because it's tight, poorly drained, guess what happens? The sodium builds up over a long period of time. Now it's also high sodium. Okay, so when you say high magnesium, let's just, let's just talk about the magnesium thing. What, what is your, what's the most common solution that you usually will talk to people about? And I realize there are a few things you could do, but what's the most common thing that people will do to help those high magnesium soils? Well, the most common people, thing that people will do in areas where they have access to it is when we tell them, well, you need to increase your calcium level, they'll get some source of calcium. And generally, we start out with a low-priced material, a lower-priced material, which normally is the case, limestone. Yep. And then 
the the situation that comes is when you get into an area where they say, well, we don't have any calcium carbonate limestone yep. and nobody's ever used any here and yep. we can't do it. Well, there's some guys in the audience that uh, live hundreds of miles away from limestone mines, but they worked out what to do to to get rid of their magnesium. Yeah, and one of the things we always say is if there is some recommendation, whether it's from Neil or anyone else, that you want to where you go, oh, it just it's going to cost way too much, at least try it on a few acres. That's not going to break you if you just do it on a few acres and then just see how that turns out, run the numbers from there. Because until you try it, you're, not, you're never going to believe that it's going to work. Yeah. All right, so, so in other words, it's not so much flushing the magnesium out of the soil, it's more about just changing that ratio and getting more calcium there. Well, the first key is we have to have the proper structure in that soil and we need good porosity yep. until we have at least 60 percent saturation of calcium you do not have the, a, a big enough pore space in order to try to use sulfur to get rid of that yep. magnesium anyway so calcium is the first key then once we have calcium above 60 percent we can use lime and elemental sulfur or we can use gypsum or whatever sources of calcium and sulfur we can get Yep, and the purpose of the sulfur is in the sulfate form. The sulfate can combine with the magnesium to form magnesium sulfate, which is Epsom salts, and salts are leachable, so that's where the, the porosity comes in. So a lot of people we work with in this region of the country put in drain tile, and we'll run into some people that say, look, I can't tile because, let's say, it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife's uh, wetland easement, and it's perpetual, so I can't put tile in. Is it good enough to just have my calcium level high? Well, first of all, it is better if, you're, if you have high magnesium and low calcium, yep. at least correct the calcium to the right, uh, what we would say on a medium to heavy soil, up into that 68 to 70% range. 72 still works all right as long as you don't tie up something else. Yep. Uh, but there's one other part here that I want to be sure to point out, and that is, when we say get your calcium to 60% and then you could use lime or gypsum or whatever, there are some soils that we get the calcium solved before, in other words, you keep on putting gypsum to get the calcium up there. Well, because every percent you raise the calcium, once you get above 60%, you ought to start seeing the magnesium dropping by the same amount. So sometimes all we have to do is push that calcium up. Now up here it doesn't work so much that way because they'll trap magnesium but you push the calcium up where it needs to be you didn't even need any sulfur yeah so first thing is to be sure that when we get the calcium where we need to be we didn't put on sulfur because then it starts to take out things you need to, you're gonna have to turn back around by again right yep. I think it's pretty interesting you know as you're building soils up here if you've got an excess in something maybe you can build the other nutrients up to high levels as well and solve the problem uh, we're talking with Neil Kinsey here following a Neil Kinsey soil seminar you're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and we'll be right back. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit MortonBuildings.com. My 
My mom's got a new case extractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Ship like a race car, steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. Palmer Amaranth. Four counts of yield theft, resistance to groups two, four, nine. You ain't got nothing on me, man. We've been surveilling you. And now we've got Tough 5EC, a tank mix partner that'll make sure you and your gang of resistant weeds never see the daylight again. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add Tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belsham Crop Protection. Maverick corn herbicide from Valent USA has proven to be a key part of growers' success in fighting problematic weeds. But don't take it from us. Take it from agronomy manager, Nate Honek. We've seen tremendous weed control that was sprayed in dry, hot conditions with uh, very little rain within two weeks after application. Very easy application. Definitely tank mix well with the various products we used. Visit valent.com backslash maverick to learn more about Maverick corn herbicide. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you're in for a real treat on Ag PhD Radio. We have just finished a three-day soil seminar with Neil Kinsey and, and some folks in his organization. It's just been fantastic. And, and Neil's kind enough to be on the show with us today. Uh, we're taking questions from our audience. If you've got questions for us or for Neil, you can always send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Let's take our first question here. So my name is David Nonamaker from Western Wisconsin. Uh, I got two parts to a question here. One is kind of a clarification from your presentation earlier. Um, you talked about calcium carbonate to put in one year. I think you said about 4,000 pounds or equivalent. Um, so I guess can you get more into that? Like uh, in like one ton, there's 600 pounds. So do you want not to use it any more than what's equivalent to that, if that makes sense mathematically? Like 4,000 pounds of 600 going into that? Actually, what uh, the figure would be would be four tons yep. or 2,400 pounds of, of calcium in a one year. In other words, we wouldn't put any more than that on in a 12-month period of time and then wait for that to show up uh, in terms of 12 months or so and then look, well, can we do more or do we need to wait? 24, yeah, 2,400 pounds of actual calcium. So, yes. for example, the lime that we use is 17% calcium is all. So we could put more than four tons on because, I mean, even at six tons, I think we're just over 2,100 pounds of calcium. Neil, let me ask you one kind of follow-up to that, though. What if it's no-till? In other words, if let's say you're tilling it in right away, now you're mixing it up in a whole bunch of soil. If it's no-till, that's where I get just a little bit concerned if I put on that, what you would say, max in a year. Should I maybe spread that out over two or three years? Because now it's just, and especially in my geography where we don't have much rainfall. So it doesn't go into the ground much, and I just worry a little bit more about the short-term tie-up of some of these micronutrients like we're we were talking about earlier today. So what do you think about no-till versus uh, conventional till? Well, first of all, what I would say is... Always, if you haven't done it before and this is a new area and you say, well, is anybody here doing it? Always a good idea to approach it and say, 
Put on half of it, and if, you, if it's enough so that you can split it in half and get a good reasonable spread, yep. put on half of it or take a little bitty area, put on what you're supposed to, and then make sure it's not something that's going to be overdone or something yep. got overlooked or whatever. Mm -hmm. doesn't hurt. To me, it doesn't hurt nearly as much if you put on too little and then come back and fill it on yep. out than if you put too much and now you cause other problems. Because if you put on too much, it's going to cause other problems. <laughs> as far yep. as no-till versus conventional till. What I would say is uh, if you don't have any experience in your area, then again, split it up. But if you, I could tell you a story about where they had already applied dolomitic and calcitic lime. No, they hadn't applied calcitic. They applied the dolomitic limestone and, and knew what would happen with one ton, two tons, three tons, and four tons of dolomite. And the soil test showed that they needed four tons of dolomite. This was a vineyard. All the, all the grapes were already planted, 400 acres. We came in there and put all that four tons of, once they had it proven, came in and put all that four tons of dolomite and a ton of calcium carbonate. That's how much they needed to correct their calcium. This was in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And all that lime that got put on there, they started getting a response right quick. But... Ten years later, every bit of that lime was applied on top, and we'd just check four inches, just like you would for no-till. And at the end of ten years, Doug Pitts got in there with the grapes, and first of all, they had a check plot. They had an 80 acres that they just split. On the side where they never put the lime and used all kinds of compost, they had nice-looking plants. But on the side, when, we, when you dug out from, with using a backhoe, and came in there and looked five different experts in terms of wine grapes. Got down to that hole, and the one said, at least a third better root system, where that's all been applied on top. And, the, and one of the guys got up to, he said, I think it's 50% better root system. We took, we took soil samples every six inches down to 48 inches. Yep. That calcium had increased three feet down yep. by putting all that on top. On the other side, the calcium was just like it was 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah, it definitely moves down. I, we found that out from experience, too, on a bunch of stuff that we've done. Right, but yeah. I'm not afraid in terms of no-till. If you don't get, if, you, if you're like Bill talked about at Bakersfield, California, four inches of rainfall, and you ask me, well, is that going to work? Uh, make sure it does before you do too much. <laughs> All right, second part of your question, David. Lastly, the last part is another clarification uh, for the phosphorus and zinc. Is it phosphate and zinc ratio? It's like 100 to 10, 100 parts to 10. So when we talk about phosphorus to zinc, parts per million to parts per million, then, yeah, we're usually talking 10 to 1 ratio. So uh, with Neil's test, when you look at it, he doesn't talk phosphate. He talks phosphorus. Okay, so to get phosphorus you have to multiply the phosphate number times 2.3 and then if and then he also talks pounds which is great I love talking pounds instead of parts per million but to convert that over let's say it's a six inch soil test you have to multiply it times two so in effect you've got to take that number take times phosphorus times 2.3 to get phosphate times and two. then multiply it times two when it's yep parts well, it's per two million, million pounds, pounds of soil, roughly. Yeah. So, in other words, instead of it being a hundred to ten, like we would talk about, he it might be closer to four sixty to ten. And what was what is the number that you were we talked about well, it yesterday? We were talking about in terms of a, a minimum. Yep. In terms of the yep. 
looking at the minimum zinc we want to see is six. Okay. And the minimum phosphate will vary based on the exchange capacity. Yep. But uh, r the, generally the, the lower levels will be 250. But if I multiply that out, then the, you said 250. 250. Yeah, and so by my calculation, I get about 276. So it, we're right in the ballpark, and yeah. that's usually what I tell people. I, I mean, it could be 8 to 1, 10 to 1, 12 to 1. Just get at least close. That we, well, we've had stuff is, where we're 2 to at, 1 or 1 to 1 and no good, and where we're 100 to 1, no good. So you just got to get in that general ballpark. And, and you look at your best areas of your farm and see where your best production's coming from, and you say, well, this is what I did over here, and it's working, and you try and emulate that on the rest of your ground. We, we look at our yield data on each of our one-acre grid points just to see, well, what are we getting for yield, and where is it coming from? That's why we talk about that phosphorus to zinc being in ratio if we got way too much of one that limits the other and and vice versa go ahead Neil. and there's another thing there and that is we're talking when i say this we're talking six parts per million zinc yep on another soil lab that Could number be may be completely different yeah. so yep all right we got time for one more here um we've got a piece of ground that was um it's got a fish and wildlife easement on it and this particular area is a uh old slough or lake bend that's been drained and then we've got one small area in there that's got some tetaka soil water sets on and we've got uh, well the overall I haven't exactly that area but right now the uh, calcium is 60.67 and uh, magnesium 19.94 you need anything else on them <laughs> You'd need a lot. What what what's your question specifically? Well, we we put on about 300 pounds of Pell lime on that whole area. Is there a way to get me to get that water to go down on that uh, that small Tetonka area, especially? How do you get improved drainage and you can't put tile in there? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we had several of these Wait. questions too, uh, I was talking to another another farmer from uh, South Dakota, and he said. We've got more compaction than we thought we would have had as dry as we've been these last couple of years. And yep, Neil, Neil, you had something. Did uh, what? Well, what I was first thing I was going to say is uh, he read his calcium number yep. off there, yep. and at sixty percent, the thing that I would say is if that were sixty percent on the test we're using, yep. we, the first thing we'd do is say push that calcium up to at least sixty-eight, and we yep. could go all the way to seventy-two depending on where the where the magnesium is. Yeah, that actually, that and that was in CRP for 10 years until two years ago. Okay. Okay. But, yeah, well, pushing that calcium means more porosity in that soil. We'll talk a little bit more about Richard's question here because uh, it's, it's a good one. We get this quite often. Hey, in this area, can I fix soil structure by building my calcium up? Uh, obviously, we're talking to one of the, the world's experts on that that's done it on soils all over the world, Neil Kinsey. Uh, you're listening yes. to Ag PhD Radio, and we'll be right back after this. If you look close enough, you can see the hidden potential within your fields. That's why an agro-liquid nutrition plan starts with the crop and identifies the precise combination of primary nutrients while focusing on the support of secondary and micronutrients. So every nutrient is working in harmony for your crop to reach its full potential. Maximizing growth while offering lower use rates. Apply less, expect more, precisely. 
Find an AgroLiquid dealer at agroliquid.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Every season, you're collecting yield data on virtually every acre of your farm. But what good is your data if you never use it? Put it to work with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on crop removal, ensuring your crops get what they need right where they need it, no matter what equipment you run. Go to Verify.com to find an expert to help you get started. That's V-R-A-F-Y.com. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Today we are not in the studio. We are broadcasting from the Morton Center at the Ag PhD Field Day site, just wrapping up a three-day Neil Kinsey Soil Seminar. And we've got some special guests on today's show. Up next is Kyle Long. And Kyle, I'm just thinking, man, I wonder how many Neil Kinsey seminars you've had to attend over the years, because Neil's your grandpa. Oh, yeah. It's It's been quite a few, <laughs> but it took me almost probably 10 years to... For everything to stick and i still oh, barely get i believe any. it i believe it <laughs> hey right before the break we were just talking about the question about building soil structure if you couldn't tile what's the what's the best thing you can do to have the best drainage porosity all that kind of thing what what do you you normally recommend there well it kind of depends on where we're at right now first thing i would check especially because i heard that it was uh not farmed either so there's probably animal stuff so compaction mm -hmm. would be something i would be interested in checking for and maybe doing some sort of ripping uh, as long as it's not too heavy of a soil yep as well so he was talking about crp so if it was in crp for quite a long time prior to that so just uh grasses mm -hmm. then are it, it 
are some of those things still important? Are you still finding that the compaction is there from years ago, maybe before it ever went into CRP? Yeah, it 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 very it's could be a possibility, but we wouldn't really know. Uh, generally, we can still look at a soil test and determine if there's a compaction layer. But if we're trying to fix it without or with ripping or something like that, but then adding calcium to that to try and bring up that that down that excessive level. Okay, so I think what you said there is kind of interesting. You can maybe figure out if there is some compaction with the soil test. What are you looking right. for? Uh, elevated anions in the soil test, like sulfur, sodium also pools up a little bit, and yep. uh, the boron. Yep. So if we find elevated boron and sulfur especially, then we can know that those are not moving out. And usually sodium gets attached to and helps move out since it, it's really reactive as well. Yep. Yeah, in our region, we see some really high sulfur levels sometimes, and uh, nitrates even uh, mm -hmm. will not move through when you got lots of compaction. All right, so if you've got a question for us, just raise your hand. We'll come around to you with the mic. We are ready for our next question right now. And if you wouldn't mind, just give us your first name and the state you're from. That'd be great. Sean from Oklahoma. Thanks. Um, in your opinion, Kyle, what is the difference in the soil workability and the trace nutrient availability um, if you could t take a soil to an 80-10 or leach out enough of excesses and make it a 68-12, what would be the better soil, one direction or the other? And by the way, what he's talking about there is 80% calcium, 10% magnesium, or 68% calcium, 12% magnesium. Go ahead. I think that 68-12 is obviously the ideal situation, but... If we have that excess of magnesium, we have really heavy clay soils, then generally that indicates that we will have a higher magnesium level. And we're not trying to take out, well, we're trying to take out that magnesium, but we're adding calcium there to try and just mask the influence of magnesium and get it out of that aerobic zone and create a more ideal structure that way. But we only go to 80-10 if we have those excesses and that we're actually trying to work on uh, masking those influences of that excess but ideally we would like to be at 6812 because that is the proper pore or proper structure all right ready for our next question go ahead yes kyle um this is lars from uh, south dakota i was just wondering how stable manganese is in the soil i mean we hear like copper and zinc stay real well in the soil but you know in the CECs less than eight, does manganese stick around or is it prone to leaching? Or Once we build up that manganese to a proper and ideal level, we usually see it stick around for quite a bit. That's similar, especially with more organic matter and more humus content to help get that stick around and then mineralize by that biology. We, we do find that once you put it on, you don't have to spend quite as much to maintain that. So, Yeah, it's maybe not as... Uh, stable as like phosphorus or you know phosphate and mm -hmm. uh, copper and zinc but it's it, it's not it's certainly not in the category even or even close of nitrate sulfate boron you know one of the one of the cool things too Kyle is you get to work with a lot of these lower cation exchange capacity or lower total exchange capacity soils really light sandy uh, low humus soils that's a whole different animal than some of these heavy soils that we get to deal with in our part of the world. What are some of the big challenges with that? Um, really, it's management. Uh, it's nice with a sandier soil because you don't have to put as much inputs on to make a big difference out there. But really what we're fighting is uh, too much air, and so we have to use that magnesium and stuff to try and 
help keep those nutrients in that water where we need it before it gets out of that aerobic zone and then becomes unusable to that plant and that biology. So, and maintaining good organic matter is also key there too. And that's the lower that exchange goes, the harder that is to do unless you're doing something like cover crops or something similar. Like keeping something on it is pretty well the best way in a sandy situation to try and alleviate some of that, that leaching. All right, ready for our next question. Go ahead. Um, Derek from Minnesota. Um, so when you have uh, higher calcium levels um, where you wouldn't really necessarily add calcium, but then you got, uh, like, say, 15% magnesium on your guys' test, say potash is probably on the lower side, I mean, what are you guys doing to kind of try and fix the magnesium? Is it just put sulfur on and add potash then, or is that going to kind of balance it out better, or what? what's kind of your recommendation there? kind of depends on what it, what you're looking at out there. If you're seeing a whole lot of drainage issues and things, then it's likely, it depends on the clay type too. You know, if, if we have a lot of uh, inner layers where magnesium is getting in between those plates and stuff, it's going to be harder to leach that out, and then we're going to have to use something like calcium to almost overcrowd, I don't like using that word, but overcrowd that influence of magnesium but on something where the clay is basically all surface negative then you can try and push off that uh, magnesium but you'll generally find that within the first year or two how that soil is going to react and then you adjust accordingly to what that's actually doing out there in the field. So one of the things too I guess I just wanted to bring up is we've talked a lot about calcium and magnesium here in the last three days and all that stuff is super important it's just we don't want to lose sight of all the other nutrients as well, and you brought up potassium. Yeah, I, I mean, we we don't want to sacrifice. Oh, let's we're really close on one. We want to make it perfect. I'd rather let's. Hey, we got to make sure we have the P and the K and the nitrogen and some of those things too. So yeah, there there's always a balance, and that's why when we're looking at or, and asking just kind of general questions, it's a lot harder when Kyle's got a soil test right in front of him. Then he can probably tell you a little bit better let's make sure we get this done and that and these are your two or three biggest yield limiting factors yeah we can't grow a crop without mpk and s you know that that has to come first and then we like to determine the structure and build that structure along with feeding that crop too that's the most economical way because you have to make a crop without making a crop then putting on building the soil structure makes no difference i right, take another question over here Hi, um, Bob from Wisconsin. Um, what's the best way to get the organic matter up in your soil? I know I got some light uh, TEC soils. And like, like what What would it be? Between, it's between seven and four. And I know that I've read that. Because these North Carolina guys are here like, that's heavy ground for yeah, us. Right. <laughs> but um, in your area, that's light. Yep. But I read that no-till is, is a good way to do it. What's the difference? between tilling it and no tilling it when you're not taking the material off the ground yeah the uh what i would say is you know strip till if you have to till something you know sometimes it's just but keeping something on it try and cover crop where you can uh we have some guys that are working with beach sand on golf courses golf greens and stuff that he's had really good luck of using something like a dry humate which gives a little bit of a uh a negative charge as well and helps feed some of that organic matter but really and truly it's it's management of the area like it as far as try and no-till where you can keep something on it as much as possible and 
try and get that magnesium to where it needs to be because we need to tighten that soil up and keep those nutrients where they are. The big thing soil scientists have told me is when you introduce more oxygen into that soil with tillage, it's like adding fuel to the fire and it burns that organic matter up mm -hmm. faster. And so we, what, what they found is most of the organic matter is built from roots decaying. So if we can leave those intact, let them decay naturally, that helps us build organic matter faster. All right, we're uh, just wrapping up a soil seminar, so a lot of the questions you're hearing, of course, are around soils. It's very important to uh, have a successful crop to have a good soil, too. We'll talk more about that coming up after this. Are you ready for better efficiency, more productivity, higher yields? Then you're ready for John Deere Precision Technology, which starts with three core pieces. First, a G5 display gives fast views of your work and a window to future technology. A Starfire receiver gives you sub-inch repeatable accuracy without an RTK base station. And a JD-Link modem gives you a live view of your entire operation. Get precise and talk with your John Deere dealer or visit johndeere.com backslash Effortlessly manage your farm fertility with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether it's building soil, balancing nutrition, or maintaining fertility. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Join Verify today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. Maverick Corn Herbicide from Valent USA has proven to be a key part of growers' success in fighting problematic weeds. But don't take it from us, take it from farmer Rob Schaefer. Residuals have become a big part of our chemical programs with trying to battle water hemp and also mare's tail is our big one. It's done a real good job of controlling those. You don't have to you know, put a bunch of gallons in your sprayer, cover a lot of acres that way. Visit valent.com backslash maverick to learn more about Maverick Corn Herbicide. Always read and follow label instructions. What's the difference between John, who bought Enlist One Herbicide, an Instinct Next Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer, and Tom, who bought Enlist One and Instinct Next Gen and used True Choice? Only about $5,000 extra in Tom's pocket. Choose True Choice and get up to 10% back. It's really as simple as that. Start saving at Corteva.com slash save more. On your farm, you spend thousands on fertilizer every season. But how do you know if any nutrient you apply is paying for itself? Build a fertility plan like never before with Verify. With Verify's soil point to yield analysis, you can automatically see the connection between your soil test and yield data to see which fertilizer dollars will make you money and which won't. Go to Verify.com to get started today. That's V-R-A-F-Y.com. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions.
Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio special show today. Uh, we're wrapping up a three-day Neil Kinsey Soil Fertility Seminar. Uh, and one of the Kinsey consultants we've got to meet over the years has been Bill Brush out in California. We talked to Bill fairly often on the show because he, he's just got a unique uh, set of experiences there in California with so many different crops, with so many different challenges out there. And you think, oh, what are you talking about? California is great. There's so many different crops they raise, high dollar crops. Yes, but it's not easy to do it or everybody would be out there doing it. So, <laughs> so Bill, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. I appreciate being here. The opportunity to get in front of this many farmers has been a dream of mine for a long time. All right, so I wanted to ask you a little about water and irrigation because we don't talk about that a whole lot on the show. Most of the Midwestern United States is dry land, but you're working with irrigation all the time. What are, what's the number one thing you're looking for when it comes to water quality for irrigation in your area? What's your number one concern? It may not be what you think. It's volume. Do you have the volume of water you need to grow the crop that you need? Uh, and... Irrigation, everybody thinks, well, I'm dry land. I don't need to worry about irrigation. But crops don't grow without water. So your yep. irrigation just has to be the natural rainfall that you have with the area. And what I found in this area, as I found all over the world, normally rainfall has an acid pH. And it undoes some of the things you're trying to do. And during our seminar or conference this week, we talked about just the huge volume that water is. Just just a foot of water is, is you know, 326,000 gallons per acre. And if it falls from the sky and it's a heavy rainfall, it actually has compaction issues to it. And then it's at eight pounds per gallon. We're looking at two and a half to almost three million pounds of stuff coming down yep. at you. And, and if you don't put that into your consideration, you keep trying to get to your... 6812 or whatever your calcium perfect calcium magnesium rate you don't get there you keep trying but you get and then you fall back and you get and you don't fall back because that water has such an effect on you because it's it's all acid okay so yesterday we talked about this just a little bit and i brought this up but we run into quite a few people where i darren and i look at their soil tests and we go oh wow we got some issues here, and a lot of it comes back to they send us a water quality sample. We go, boy, that is not the greatest. Can you find some better water? Nope, this is what I have to deal with. Okay, yeah, so. Yeah, it's not like they have five different choices, Brian, in a field. <laughs> but you maybe know, they can let's go. Let's go to that other well in this yeah, field. But maybe, that other well maybe you could field. go to a deeper <laughs> well or something like that. But just talk to us a little bit about how you handle that when it does have high sodium or it's 9 pH or, I mean, just something that could really throw my field off. What, the first thing I always tell people the only thing worse than, than poor quality water is no water. You're not going to grow anything. Yep. So you have to work with the water that you have. And if you have choices, then you, you drift towards the better choices and use it as much as you can. But if that's the water you have to, then the Kinsey Albrecht program is so important because what are you worried most about usually is sodium and build up the sodium. And it usually builds up because magnesium plates it over, plugs your pore space, and it just drops on top of it. Therefore, we have to keep those soils opened up. We have to keep them flocculated where calcium's creating that good pore space so we can drive sodium. Sodium's really easy to move if you've got a good balanced soil. It's almost impossible to move if you have a 40-40 soil, 40% calcium and 40% magnesium. You just can't get it to move. So you have to work on your soil first or your water 
is going to kill you. Yep. And then if you've got your soil in good shape, continuing to keep that pore space open so you can continue to drive that sodium through. Yeah, you'd have to be sampling on a very regular basis. So like for, for your people that are raising crop, I assume year-round, are they testing every single year? Are they testing twice a year, this, every other year? What are they doing? This is actually a question that came in from Gordon. He, he asked, how much do the properties of irrigation wells change from year to year, and are there do's and don'ts with respect to collecting those samples time of year, how you do it, and so forth. Yeah, if you're going to collect a water sample from a well, do you want to make yourself feel good? Do after the heavy rainfall and all the water, because that will be at its best. But when you really need your waters, when it gets hot later in the summer, and that's when you're applying more, that's when it's at its worst, because you're drawing down and the water gets of poor quality as you get through the season. So I always like to get a baseline at the end of my growing season with what my water is, and how much it improved and get another one in the spring. So when I use those two as my baseline, now I can kind of tell what that water is going to do over my growing season. And once you get a few, then you'll probably just kind of go back to the end of the year because that's when it is. Uh, the water doesn't change a lot, but the weather does. <laughs> and when the weather changes, then your water changes. A lot of things are in, enter into that thing. How deep is your well? The shallower it is, the sooner you're going to get effects from rainfall, snow, and, those, and the like. The deeper it is, the more time it's going to take for that water to filter down to it to have really any impact on it to make it cleaner or better. Uh, it does a lot to your soil, that extra rainfall. Cleans it up, opens it up. It does a lot of good things for you. But if you're not careful, it'll leach out what you're trying to build, which is soluble calcium, and get that on the soil colloid. All right, again, another question came in. This one's from Andrew. He said, we have about 50 irrigation wells. They are anywhere from 30 to 120 feet deep. Five to 10 of these wells, though, pump an orange-brown mud-like substance that becomes a real problem plugging nozzles. It sounds like something you were talking about in this afternoon's session. So we've been told that the well was just overpumped and that the screen is exposed to air, allowing bacteria to grow. Uh, is there a way to treat this problem? Is there a way to kill the bacteria without hurting the pump or well equipment? We've got iron in the water, but I haven't tested for manganese yet. Yeah, and we normally find, and I, I occasionally, it's very rare, but occasionally you'll have both iron and uh, manganese slimes develop in there. And, it, and it's a bacteria that feeds off that. So in the absence of those, that bacteria, even if it was there, wouldn't be any harm to you. When he talks to me, like, you know, one thing, if you think about bacteria, the easiest thing to kill it is chlorine. And a lot of wells will just literally put something like a bleach solution down, and we start with a half a gallon. There's no use putting a gallon and having to deal with the, everything that's going to come off of that chlorine if a half a gallon will do it. So you see if that's enough to actually suppress that slime and bacteria growth. Then once we do that now, you say, wow, but we don't want to put chlorine on the, on the soil. Well, if that was going into one pivot, think of how much you would take a half a gallon and put it over 140 acres. It's such a minute amount. It's not going to be detrimental. And as it gets into the soil, it's going to go from chlorine to chloride, which yep. is not going to hurt you any. And then it's going to move through the soil because as a soil, if it's opened up, it's an anion, negatively charged water will push it right through. All right, got time for a question here. Go ahead. Uh, Rich from South Dakota, you were talking this afternoon about 
flushing these uh, elements down through the soil. Uh, are you flushing them down, and are they going back into your irrigation, uh, into your uh, aquifers, and are you pumping them back up and just reconstituting or uh, concentrating them? It depends which one you're talking about. If you're talking about nitrate, I, I had a guy that's way smarter than me. He's a, a great guy that does a lot of spatial work up above with satellite work and, and, and does some things. But he also looks at ground. You know, he's a soil scientist. And he said, if you apply something on the soil, it takes somewhere around 100 years for it to hit the aquifer. And that's provided your aquifer is at 150 feet or so. So in 100 years, it will take it that long to get there. Because we were worried about nitrate at the time. And when we were looking at how fast nitrate would move, what I do today, I won't notice in the aquifer for 100 years. I don't think that's going to be the big issue. Plus, a lot of things can happen over that period of time. So when you look at moving cations, they have natural attraction to hold on. Nitrate moves because it's negatively charged as an anion. So it's much more mobile and it's going to move a lot faster you're going to move those things like sodium and magnesium hopefully over time as they basically dissolve and move and move back together dissolve move and go back together that's the way you move it through the soil it's not like you pour it through and there it just goes all at one time it's a movement that goes through the soil yeah, the soil is a great big filter. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Uh, it, you're listening to Bill Brush here along with Brian and me on Ag PhD Radio today. Uh, Bill's worked with Neil Kinsey for many, many years out in California. We're taking questions from our audience following a soil seminar, and we'll be right back after this. What's the difference between John, who bought Enlist One herbicide, an Instinct Next-Gen nitrogen stabilizer, and Tom, who bought Enlist One an Instinct Next-Gen and used True Choice? Only about $5,000 extra in Tom's pocket. Choose True Choice and get up to 10% back. It's really as simple as that. Start saving at Corteva.com slash save more. Higher yield potential starts with the season-long systemic disease protection of Zyway brand fungicides from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides protect corn crops from key foliar diseases and support physiological benefits that help develop healthier, higher yielding corn for a difference you'll appreciate at harvest. Visit your FMC retailer for an at-plant advantage. Always read and follow all label directions. Your farm data platform might let you manage your fertilizer plan by helping you set sample points, determine management zones, or create fertilizer recommendations. With Verify, you can do all that. But what Verify does that no one else can is take yield data straight from your combine, correlate this info to soil test points, and immediately generate variable rate fertilizer maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether you want to build soil levels, balance your field for uniform nutrition, or maintain fertility levels by simply applying what you removed at harvest. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Sign up for your Verify account today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. That's V-R-A-F-Y dot 
Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. For the smallest investment with the biggest impact on yield, upgrade your planter with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. To see how we stack up against the competition at a fraction of the cost, call us at 712-520-6051. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now... You can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Ag PhD Radio, thanks for joining us. Following up with a three-day soil seminar here, and you think, wow, people would actually stay for three days for a soil seminar? They're still here, folks. They're still here, and we're taking <laughs> questions from the audience. So obviously they got some good questions coming. Let's uh, jump back to Richard here from South Dakota. Yeah, Richard. Um, I'm going to go the other way now. Uh, since Brian and Hefties are always talking about how dry we are, how much does this wick back up again? How much does water move back up through capillary action? Bill, that, 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 that's I'll, for you. Go I'll ahead. give you the classic <laughs> answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, what is your base, you know, your uh, well, exchange capacity? Obviously, if it's sandy, it's going to move deeper into the soil and go farther down. If you have little or no soil humus, it'll go deeper and farther down, less likely to wick back up. But if you have heavier soils, it's going to stay and re be retained in there for quite a bit longer. Really, when we're trying to move the, the, the bad things like excess magnesium and, and sodium, we're just trying to get them out of the aerobic zone. That's all we really want to do. Once they get below there, they become unharm you know, not harmful. If you only get them to six inches, they will move back up, but they're not probably going to get back to the surface. And so you're always going to have this three or four nice area to feed your crop from. But your problem is, is that when you start to dry out, it's going to draw water and not nutrients. So the sodium and magnesium aren't going to be really influenced that much to go back up into your plant because they're down below that, the really most active, of, which is that first three or four inches. That's why you got to get it down to, a, I love to get down to a foot, but if I could only get it down to six to eight inches is a good spot too. It'll just tape there and kind of go up and down. And eventually the water will wash it through because it's been pushed off the soil colloid, off the clay, and now it's sitting there and just becoming, whether it's sodium chloride or magnesium sulfate or whatever, is down, moved off the colloid and down, particularly in sands, they'll just keep moving down. And again, it's them basically going into solution, and as water moves, they move, and as water dries up, they go back together. So it's just this constant dynamics of going back. When it stays dry, it's not going to move because it's here. So it's when it gets wet up above, it's got to get moisture to it before it'll move back towards the water. All right. Uh, I had a question. Speak of water. Got this question from John up in North Dakota. He said, we're wheat farmers here. Uh, a lot of times it's dry. Is there really any place for foliar fertilizer for us raising wheat? Or should we be feeding the soil 
with spreading, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, is that the only impactful practice for my wheat long-term? I always look at, at, you know, pounds come from the soil. Yep. And the environment that really is most uh, impactful on your plant is the soil. I like to yep. show my growers all the time, everything that's up here came from there. And so that being the case, you know, a foliar can really be helpful, particularly on the micronutrient side. Why? Because you don't need very much to make a big difference. If you're talking about adding nitrogen, phosphate, the things that really need a lot of pounds, I don't see you're very impactful by putting a lot of those into foliars. They can be helped at a certain point, but the micros seem to be where it's at with, with foliars. And one thing I found is they seem to always work better in combination. Not that I'm short of zinc, so I'm only going to put zinc on. Uh, you can create a temporary deficiency of another micronutrient that you thought was okay but is not because once that chelated material gets in there and is harvested, well, it sucks up something else into that chelation and now it's not available. So they always work better if you get a little bit of everything into them. And sometimes that little bit extra as they work synergistically together, it makes all the difference in the world. The other thing, when we start talking North Dakota, okay, in a lot of cases, heavier soil, not a lot of rainfall, grounds frozen half the year, you're not going to lose it probably ever in your lifetime. So we just talk an awful lot about, hey, let's build the soil up and think a little bit more long term. All right, we got time for another question or two. Go ahead there, sir. Yeah, Ted Glob from Arkansas. This is a little different question, and it's rice production on monolithic clays to light soils, uh, we have a natural barrier that prevents water going down. That's the reason we raise rice. But then it will crack with cracks that can be, well, a friend of mine who's six foot eight stuck his shoulder all the way, or his arm all the way in the ground to his shoulder. How do these type of soils change our water movement? I freely admit I don't understand rice. <laughs> Anything that grows 100% of the time in, in water, I've always struggled with. I do know the physiology of how they breathe and then how they, those roots are, are supplied with oxygen back from, from the, uh, uh, from happen, the leaves. We happen to have a soil fertility expert yeah, from I the know. Boot Hill of Missouri here. Do you, what would you say about that, Neil, for, uh, for rice production? Well, first of all, First of all, I would say that uh, we have had clients that have told us, you straightened out our soil and it won't hold enough water for rice anymore. <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah. it's one of the oldest clients we have. But uh, in terms of the working with rice growers here and in uh, southeast Missouri, Arkansas, down all the way into Texas, uh, what I would say is those soil that are tight or, and hold the water there uh, it was the question that how do you keep from losing the water or what was the it's cracking of oh, the cracking uh, yeah uh, as far as that uh, Dr. Al Trous was uh, uh, did research from the Tillage Institute in Alabama at Auburn and he used to go and dig pits and get down in and show you and he'd say it doesn't matter how deep that cracks when the water comes, it seals right back together. And he said, you can even go through and rip it and it won't come back. And the Sharky Clay soils where I grew up, the Soil Conservation Service said, it doesn't do any good to rip those soils. 
You rip them in the fall when they're dry enough to rip, and by spring, they've already run back together, and they're just as tight as they were, and they were, until you corrected the calcium. <laughs> yep. So it's just basically excess magnesium that's causing all this. Yeah, that's yep. what I would say. Right. Now, how about, how about organic matter? Is that part of this equation, too, that if you could build up humus in the soil, that would help some of this and buffer it a little bit? Well... Building humus always is going to help, but the question there is anything we can do to hold more water there, because it's when it dries out, it's when it really cracks open. And I think at home, we had some soil that would dry out in July, and you could take a log chain and just start putting it down through there. And if you lost it, you weren't going to get down there yep. and find it and pull it back up again. But just as soon as, it got rain, as we got rain, it filled up. Now, the other side of that is, We've had in the Carnelis Valley of California, area of California, we've had uh, soil there that cracked wide open and so forth. And after they corrected those soils, they didn't crack anymore. And some people actually said, "Oh, you didn't solve anything. You just it just filled in with clay." Those soils, you could walk right over into the next area where it wasn't treated. No soil were cracking just like they always did. Yeah. Tim Reinbot that spoke here last year said, we're going to take some soil and just add magnesium to them. And he, uh, in a video presentation he showed us last week, I'd seen it before, but on some of those randomized replicated plots at Bradford Research Farm at University of Missouri, where he said, we want to raise that magnesium up to in the 20% range, that soil, cracked. that soil never cracked. But it cracked right to from the from right in those yeah. little areas where that was, each randomized replicated plot, it was a crack right down the middle. So yeah, in, in California, we used to, they used to burn all the rice stubble. You know, they didn't put that, any of that back in, and they were forever. I, I think it's actually helped them when they prohibited them from burning because they, now they have that rice stubble, and it goes back to building more organic yep. matter and building more biology there. And one day I need to get you, you and me together, Neil, and you explain to me how biology works underwater. I haven't <laughs> figured that one out yet. I don't know what it is, but it just doesn't add up to me. <laughs> Yeah, it gets to be a real challenge, and, and it is kind of a fun thing when you get to work with different soils like this and, and different crop production practices and even different states and regulations and those types of things, uh, uh, the cultural practices. I know we talked to, to a number of farmers here about cover crops and how that's changing some of the things that they're doing in their operation and, and also just the timing of getting everything done because we're talking about taking good soil analysis, analysis of any water that you may use, working with a, a trusted advisor, talking with your neighbors, how are you guys handling this, what's working, uh, and then just getting experience with all of it. It takes time. So if you're listening to a lot of this information saying, oh, my goodness, those guys are talking <laughs> over my head here. I'm never going to pick it all up in a hurry. Uh, it does take some time and some repetition to do this, uh, and that's a good thing about farming. Uh, if we can just stay in business long enough, uh, we'll start figuring out a lot of these things as we go. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. We thank, thank Neil and Kyle. Uh, thank everybody for coming to the seminar this week. We really appreciate all of you. And thanks to you for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.